820. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he's also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers, sisters, one of the teachings, one of the doctrines of the Bible concerns the perseverance of the saints. The teaching that says that those who are saved cannot fall away from salvation. And this teaching is prominent in Lord's Day 20. For here we can read, the Holy Spirit is given to me and will remain with me forever. That's a pretty bold confession. The Holy Spirit, whom we confess as God himself, is given to me that I might have true faith and so share in all the riches and consolation of Jesus Christ. And this is true for me forever. Only one question and answer on the Holy Spirit and so much in it. We're not going to examine the confession that the Holy Spirit is God this time around. I want to bring your attention to that last part, that the Holy Spirit is given to me and will remain with me forever. The Holy Spirit is given to me and will remain with me forever. So our theme, the Holy Spirit is given to me and will remain with me forever. We'll see two things looking at our text in Matthew 12, spiritual vacancy and spiritual life. Our focus will find its source in our reading of Matthew 12, 43, 45. There Jesus tells a story of a demon who leaves a man. Now we don't place much stock in demon possession nowadays. Maybe we should. But anyways, it's clear from the New Testament that in Jesus' day there were many who had demons, who were demon possessed. And that Jesus and others were confronting demons and casting them out. Not only Jesus was doing this, but he says the Pharisees are doing this. We know that the sons of Sceva in Asia Minor were doing this. But Jesus was preaching and healing and casting out demons and thus pitching the tent of God's kingdom all over the land of Israel, from village to town to countryside. But what would the people do? Would they accept Jesus? Would they make room for him? He was busy cleaning up the mess sin had made. And sin has made much brokenness in the world. It's brought lameness and illness and blindness, death, even, and demons. But Jesus went about restoring things. As he was doing that, he was confronted time and again by the legalists and the serious secular people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He was confronted about Sabbath laws, about work on Sunday, we might say. He was confronted about his healings, 
about casting out demons, about exorcisms. His opponents demanded a sign, and he answered that the one greater than the temple was here. He was the great priest. The one greater than Solomon was here, the great king. That one greater than Jonah was here, the great prophet. That the prophet priest king was here. This is the one who is walking in the land, preaching, healing, raising the dead, and casting out demons. But the leaders of the people are not impressed. They're not buying into the program or what they thought was this hype about Jesus. So he tells a story, a parable, we would say. There's a demon who leaves a man and he goes to the waterless places looking for rest. I kind of imagine the plains of Gorgoros in the final chapters of the Lord of the Rings. The demon leaves the lush places of a human life and goes back to where he comes from, to dry and weary places. When the demon went out, there was an intermediate period. When Jesus came to town, he was changing things. The day of salvation, a year of the Lord's favor, he calls it. A moment of grace. And this happens every worship service. God is here in our midst, even now. A moment of grace. This is the day of salvation, the time of God's favor. But what would the people do? Would they take Jesus to heart? Turn from their ways, believe in him, trust him, follow him, do the will of the Father who sent him? join his family, so to say? Or would they only be carried by the excitement of the day? Hey, did you hear that Jesus was coming to town? Let's go and hear what he has to say. Maybe we'll see an exorcism or two. That'd be exciting. Or maybe they would boast that he came to their town. Hey, did you hear Jesus was in town yesterday? And maybe there would be a little bit more religious talk, a bit more about God and prayer. But would there, would there be an acceptance of the place of the Holy Spirit? Would there be a real decision to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to love Jesus, to follow him? Would there be transformation? Would there be transformation? The Lord Jesus came into their lives, what would they do? Jesus preached, John baptized, many repented of sin. And the tide of the brokenness of this world is pushed back for a moment. Sick or healed, lame walk, deaf hear, blind see. Demons are cast out. The dead are raised even. And the gospel, the good news is preached. What would be done with this gift of time and opportunity? Well, the demon, he was unable to find a comfortable place in the dry and weary places of Gorgoroth, so he returns. Maybe yet there's room in the inn. And lo and behold, someone has come and cleaned up the place. It's like a motel room. You know that scene, the room is empty, unoccupied. 
swept clean and tidy. And the first word here is important. The, the, the place is empty. It's vacant. The towns that Jesus visited were cleaned up, so to say. The towns had been swept and tidied up. Things had been set in order. But it was only external. Israel had experienced a house cleaning by the baptism of John and by the preaching of Jesus. Many came to listen and to be impressed. However, this is not the way the house of Israel was to be set in order. The Lord Jesus says there needs to be a fundamental change of heart. The house was empty. All was tidy and it was clean. It was fixed up. But it was empty. There was a great vacancy sign set up. The meaning, of course, is this that Jesus should be honored as Lord, that the Holy Spirit should take up residence. The preaching teaches us that the Holy Spirit is true and eternal God, that he's the one who ties us to and applies to us all the gifts and blessings Jesus Christ obtained for us. There is no real reception of Jesus nor receiving of his gifts without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. House has been cleaned up by the Lord through the preaching from this pulpit for this purpose, that the Holy Spirit might live here. But the people think they can profit from Jesus without accepting his demands. Sure, Jesus can send away the demons, sweep up the house, clean up the joint, set it back in order and fix it up. But the door remains locked and the house is empty. And this, my friends, is a very dangerous situation. For Jesus is not here about the externals. And so often we're concerned about the externals. What will others think about me and my life and my family? What will others think about me when they see my children and the mess there? And what will they think about me if they only knew what was really going on behind the closed doors of my life? If what we do on Sunday in worship, and I suspect that for some of us this is true, if what we do here is more about externals than anything else, then we are in mortal danger. The house is clean but empty. The person is religious, but vacant. The congregation is moral, but aimless. Empty, clean, and all fixed up. Much of our life will fall under that rubric. Empty, clean, and all in order. Few lives are more in danger of demonic attack than that. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a young person, a church member. She asked for my advice about having a dance at her wedding. Not a nightclub dance, but some square dancing and some line dancing. And her in-laws-to-be were completely against it. They were opposed to dancing. It was way too worldly. She wondered about that because the in-laws wanted an open bar at the reception. Lest anyone would think that they were cheap. What will people think? The dance? Can't have that. Too worldly. What will people think? 
an open bar, we must have that. Let the booze flow. Can't be seen to be too cheap. Empty, clean, and all in order. An unclean spirit is left, and we sit under the preaching. We read our Bibles. We send our kids to Christian schools. Good on us. But if the house and the family and the individual, the congregation is only empty, clean, and set in order, and we're set up for a return of the unclean. Nothing is more open to attack of the demons than an orderly moral life. In the life of someone who says, I've got my life together. But the demon returns and finds vacancy in hotel Canar see. The beds are made, the linens clean, the soaps are fresh, the towels are neatly hung and folded. He calls to his friends, check it out. I've come back to my place. That's literally what it says. I, I, I will return to my place. Guys, they checked out my place, the one I left. It's still a place where we can hang out. And seven more move in with him. And then there were eight. And the demon's black art is to pollute that which is clean, to mess up that which is orderly, to dirty the place up, and to move into the empty places of a person's heart. This happens to men and women, to boys and girls, young people too. I've been preaching for more than 25 years, and Sunday by Sunday I see some people who are bored, some taking a nap, nothing too exciting going on. For people don't live by bread alone, but by their passions. If the house of your life is only swept out and set in order, then demons will fill the emptiness. That's Jesus' warning here. The demons will come. Maybe those demons are the isms of the world, influences of relativism, materialism, consumerism. Or maybe you'll get caught up in violent video games. They become addictive. Or drugs, or gambling, or internet pornography. I look into the eyes of some people of the church and see no response to the gospel, no desire to worship, vacancy. Here marriage is under pressure, Christian families in turmoil, powerful secular forces, and why is that? Is it because we've only allowed the gospel to send away the unclean demons who left our houses swept, empty and set in order? Too many who sit under the preaching are not moved by the gospel. They're interested, but unmoved. We like the preaching to be interesting, but we're not transformed by it. We come to church wondering how the minister is going to do. How's the minister going to fare today? Now considering how we're going to fare under the preaching. Interested, but not personally invested. Kind of neutral. But neutrality to Jesus is an empty house. Unemotional belief in Jesus is a swept out house. Living lives untouched by the spirit of Jesus is a house only set in order. When the house of our life has only an interest in Jesus with no commitment to him, no love for Jesus, such a house is in danger of becoming a haunted house. One with eight demons. 
And the demonic kingdom is stronger and more complex than the cleaned up person in his naivety ever imagined. He thought, hey, things are okay with me. Nothing can happen to me. But actually, there are many things that can happen. There are many destructive powers with immoral might. The cast out demon returns with seven, mightier than himself, worse than himself, darker than himself. And together they set up a community of destruction in the empty place. So the end is worse than the beginning. The final state uglier than the first. Better not to have been freed at all than to have been freed by the Redeemer without turning to the Redeemer. Thus it would be for those legalists and pious, serious ones who challenge Jesus with their doubts and their skepticism and their demands for a sign. Neutrality to Jesus is an empty house. Interest in Jesus with no passion for the gospel and no love for him is just sweeping things up. Jesus summons us to fill the house, to join with the church, to take worship seriously. And do we do that? To appropriate what he has given. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, promised to you at your baptism, presented to you in the sacraments, powerful in the preached word. He challenges us to become faithful disciples in this world. Challenges us to be transformed. To love Jesus more. And to be transformed means to think God's thoughts after him to have our wills bent to his, to love what Jesus loves, and to love Jesus more. When the Lord Jesus comes to us in word and sacrament, he's not just setting our house in order. No, he's wanting to move in. Because the Holy Spirit has been given to you and to me in the promises of the gospel. Those promises come to us in the word, but they are received by us only by true faith. Too many of God's people are influenced by Jesus, but not really gathered by him or gathering with him. And the Christian Western world is rapidly becoming a territory of the demons. The new paganism is more dangerous than the first. This story is in a way the, the story of the Western world and of Christendom after two world wars. This is the story of Europe and very swiftly becoming the story of Canada. It's a warning to us. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 18, be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. A one phrase commentary on this little parable. Be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Another place we can turn to realize the truth of this parable is in 2 Peter 2, at 19 and following. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. The sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. 
These texts teach the possibility of losing salvation. And then we ask the question, what about the perseverance of the saints? Is it possible to lose your salvation? Yes, it's possible to be born in the church, be a recipient of all that is good, being a recipient of the promises, and yet never making it your own. Matthew teaches us about useless salt, about spiritually proud people at 7.21, of no obedience to Jesus' word at 7.24, of those who believe only in good times in 13.21, of choked seed in 13.22, of bad fish at 13.47, unforgiving though forgiven, in 1821, wedding guests without wedding garments in chapter 22:11, of abusive servants in 24 or 48, of wedding guests with unoiled lamps, chapter 25, of servants with unused talents in chapter 25, of uncompassionate servants in chapter 25. All of these were called and found in and then thrown out. So the warning comes, better never to have a gospel house cleaning than to have a gospel house cleaning and eviction and then to have left the place vacant. And how can I be sure that this doesn't include me? It's a pressing question. How can I be sure? How can you be sure this doesn't include you? Are sincere believers so threatened? No, for those in whom the Holy Spirit has taken residence. Let's hear how John Calvin speaks on this. He is a clear thinker and writer on things about the Holy Spirit. He's often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He writes, for believers in whom God's Holy Spirit dwells secure, are everywhere so garrisoned that no hole in the armor is left for Satan to attack. But then he warns us, according to this story of Jesus, that even in believers there is that emptiness which follows upon the neglect of divine grace. An emptiness which follows upon the neglect of divine grace. We must not think that Satan is overcome in one battle when he has gone from us once. Yet the unconquerable power of the Holy Spirit keeps us safe. So we may enjoy the certainty of faith and the perseverance of faith, but not security, Christian certainty, but not careless security. The heart of a person is that place that must have an occupant. There is no longer a vacancy there. There will be someone seated on the throne of our hearts. Someone will dwell there. And the only real relationship you can have with Jesus is one of compassionate commitment. Just think of Israel in Jesus' day. Wherever he went, the demons protested. His very presence pushed them back, chased them out, cast them away. Time and again, the demons fled before him. And some marveled at it, and some feared it. 
And Mary Magdalene, from whom were cast seven demons, was passionately connected to Jesus. She had the right idea. The demon out time was the time for Israel to turn to Jesus, to be passionate about him. And the demon back time in the story represents the danger to a whole generation if they reject the Lord Jesus. Ever since the story of the return of the unclean spirit is addressed to us all, especially as a warning to those who have a half of repentance, semi-seriousness, decreasing fervor. And who of us is not addressed by that? And yet, what about the reality of Lord's Day 20, that the Holy Spirit is given to me and will remain with me forever? How can you be sure that this is true for you? Well, Jesus does not leave us without answers to that either. For there is a promise of grace immediately following this story of judgment. How can you measure your spiritual life? Not some doctrine of eternal security, but the comfort of the certainty of the promise of God. It comes right after. For while Jesus was talking to the crowd, some came to him and told him that his mother and brothers were outside. And Jesus, never letting a teaching moment pass him by, asked the question, who really is my mother and my brothers? And pointing to his disciples seated around him as he taught, for they too had been confronted by the parable of the unclean spirit, Jesus points to them and says, These disciples of mine, they are my brothers and my mother. Why? Because they do the will of my Father in heaven. These are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. So that, my friends, is a measuring stick for certainty. Do you hear the word of Jesus, Father, and then go and do it? When you do the will of the Heavenly Father, then you can be certain that the Holy Spirit is with you, that he has taken up residence with you. In Jesus' family, they were not, as Mark describes the story, sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus' family was at a cool distance. They could walk away. Or they could take him into custody if he got too carried away. Read that in Mark 3, verse 20. They were like the vacant house of the previous verses. But the disciples, the Marys, the faithful, they were sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging on to his words. And doing the will of the Heavenly Father is this. Repent from sin and sinfulness and believe in Jesus, love Jesus more. This isn't a text pointing to some do-good activism, no, not at all. It's a word telling us that to be connected to Jesus, you have to hang on to his teaching. For the Spirit comes by the word, and the word works with the Holy Spirit. And so through the preached word and the reading and meditating on it, that's the Holy Spirit's chosen vehicle to get inside your vacancy and my vacancy and we might believe in him in true faith. And Jesus has many mothers and many brothers and many sisters, but he has only one father. He's truly human in that he shares the family relationship with you and me, but he's truly divine as well. 
both at once divine and human, lowly by intention, majestic in fact, lowly by will, high in person, servant of others by choice, son of God by nature. And so we confess that the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son is true and eternal God. And he's given to me to remain with me forever. Of that I can be certain. But the call of the covenant of grace is this. Cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trust him with undivided loyalty. Hang on to his words, his teaching. Make them your own. Repent and believe. Love Jesus more. And the Holy Spirit will impart, does impart to you in reality what you already have in Jesus. It's certain, I promise. Amen.